Welcome to the Patientless Podcast. We discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly about real-world data and AI in clinical research. This is your host, Kareem Galil, co-founder and CEO of Mendel AI. I invite key thought leaders across the broad spectrum of believers and descenders of AI to share their experiences with actual AI and real-world data initiatives. Hi, everyone. On today's show, we have a very special guest. The first time I heard the concept of patientless trials was actually during one of our interactions. We were introduced to the digital team at Novartis, and I was basically explaining what products we were building, and then this guy goes, oh, you guys are building patientless trials. That is a very interesting term. It's kind of, it kind of inspired us and also significantly helped us in shaping our strategy There are very few people who have I met in my life that I can recall that have inspired me in 30 minutes, and he's definitely one of them. After getting his PhD from Harvard University, he started his career at McKinsey, helping Fortune 500 companies shape their R&D strategy. He was also a fellow at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. After his time at McKinsey, he entered the CRO world and was the chief of staff to the chief medical officer at PPD. Then right after that, he joined Novartis and his main objective there was to assist them in figuring out their business strategy when it comes to digital transformation. An entrepreneur at heart, he co-founded Biome Novartis, which is very interesting because you don't get to see a lot of people holding the title co-founder in the pharma world, and especially in big pharma. Our guest today is Jacob Laporte. Jacob, welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be here. And it's great to hear that I might have said something that ultimately inspired you. So that's that's really kind of you. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you've ever been to a trade show, when you see our booth, we usually have patientless trials, big, bolded display, So just as a disclaimer, we haven't paid Jacob anything for the rights of using the term patientless trials. But Jacob, again, thank you so much for being on today's show. I believe that today we are going to have a mind-blowing discussion because Jacob is an individual who is not only able to have the foresight for innovation for what can happen in the next 20 years, but he's also pragmatic enough to understand what we can and cannot accomplish today. Maybe before we get started, why don't you let us know a bit more about Biome? What is Biome? Yeah, sure. Well, in the simplest metaphor that we use, we kind of see it as an on-ramp for helping great external partners work with Novartis teams to co-create novel digital solutions. So just like in everyday life, it would be very hard for a car to get on the highway from a stop sign, no matter what car you drive. Similarly, for external partners that we work with at Novartis, it's very hard for them to get up and running and fit into the traffic flow of our highway without a better on-ramp system. So the biome is really looking at those classic challenges that exist at the interface of a big pharma company with the external digital health and tech ecosystems. And it's asking the question, how can we build tools and processes and approaches that help Novartis teams find the right partner in this very complex ecosystem. And when they do find the the, the right partner, how can they kind of start to work together in a better way to to more effectively co-create 
digital solutions. So that's that's really what we're all about. Is it a safe assumption to say that you guys are like the pharma version of a Silicon Valley incubator? It's funny that you say that because I think a lot of people want to draw that analogy to something that they're used to, but we don't have a program in place that is very similar to an incubator or, or an accelerator, as you, as you would say, in a classical sense. What we do do is we help external partners really kind of onboard into Novartis and translate the technology that they've developed into a context and a in an environment for Novartis, which ultimately helps them scale their solution into a major pharmaceutical company. So we have things, for instance, that do really look to support our entrepreneurs and our external partners. We do augment them with internal expertise that we have where relevant. We are thinking about tools that help them develop their solutions. Like one thing that we're kind of developing right now is called a data sandbox where if we have data in Novartis that could be useful, we might be able to anonymize that data or create synthetic data sets and upload them to an environment to allow these external partners to operate on that data and maybe evolve their algorithms. So we're thinking a lot about how to support our partners in developing these, these digital solutions. Are they free to work with other pharma companies if they are part of the Biome project? Yeah, 100%. This is a pure open innovation model. We think that it's it's actually, frankly, advantageous for our partners to work with other companies because it really helps you know spread, frankly, the risk and also spread the opportunities to scale a particular solution. So we, we don't necessarily see ourselves as the natural owner of a lot of these solutions, but we'd rather use them to augment our our ability to get our medicines to patients faster and more effectively to extend and improve their lives. So so yeah, it's a complete open innovation system. You guys started around two years ago, and now there have been a multitude of success stories, one of which that I find very intriguing is happened overseas in Ghana. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, I think it's a great illustration of what, what the biome process can do. So I think what you're referring to is a story we came out with actually a couple of weeks ago where we were working with our global health organization at Novartis, which already has an ongoing initiative around increasing the access to medicines in sub-Saharan Africa for, for sickle cell disease patients. But one of, the, one of the classic problems, of course, with that disease is the loss to follow-up that you experience in healthcare populations that are distributed and may not have the best healthcare infrastructure because you need to diagnose sickle cell right now with a, with a blood laboratory study, right? So what happens is you can get out into the population and collect their blood samples. But once you run the, the laboratory test or diagnostic, you've often lost that patient to follow up. So they actually don't get the diagnosis and the medicines that they need. So one of the things that the Biome did to help out this initiative is we started looking for diagnostics that could be delivered at point of care to, to, to help cut down that problem of loss to follow up. And we wound up finding an amazing company in Portland, Oregon called Hemex Health, which has a fantastic, cheap, portable point of care diagnostic for sickle cell disease and malaria. And so this is an amazing story where a technology be de being developed in Portland, Oregon was able to plug into an initiative in sub-Saharan Africa 
and now we're now we're starting to see some of that exciting fruit of that labor happen where we're being able to diagnose patients and get them on medicines, life-saving medicines, uh, a lot faster for, for that. So, and this is an example where, you know, the biome also thinks about how to support its partners, like I was mentioning before. So Hemex Health had a great technology. We knew that it worked, but it wasn't actually approved on the market in Ghana to actually be incorporated into this initiative. So we actually had augmented their team with regulatory support from Novartis. And I love to thank my associates that really stepped in in a big way to help out in, in regulatory. And we were able to accelerate their approval onto the Ghana market and therefore incorporate them into this initiative. So it's a, it's a fantastic story about how we can more quickly translate these new technologies into our existing business to basically improve and extend patients' lives. It's, it's, really, it's really touching because when you, when you think about sickle cell disease, it has such a large burden, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Many of the patients that have sickle cell don't live beyond their sixth birthday. And, and it's just amazing to think that we might be able to have a technology here that gets these, these patients on medications faster and therefore really extend and improve their quality of life. So it's a great story. Wow. It is a great story. And it is a great example of the kind of corporate responsibility that big pharma should take on by breaking these borders. To add, you guys are doing a great job. I like the vision that you have now that has transformed the company from being a pharma company to becoming more of pharma and data company. So you guys are leading that digital transformation in the pharma industry. Talking about digital transformation, Jake, how would you define patientless trials? It's definitely one of those loosely defined terms. And many people tend to think that patientless trials are against the patient. You had made the argument that the best thing we can do for patients are patientless trials. So how would you define a patientless trial? Defining it is always so difficult, right? To me, I guess I would say that patientless trials is a sub-segment of clinical trial simulation. So really what we're trying to do is simulate a, an outcome of a clinical trial using existing data. So therefore, to reduce the need of actually using patients in a study to test the medicine and to determine whether it's safe or effective, which is the best tool that we have today, right? But if you think about it, what clinical trials are doing is they're, they're testing these, these medicines on, on patients. So if we could somehow understand the outcomes using existing data and simulations without putting these patients into trials, I, I would argue that's one of the more patient-centric approaches to clinical trials that one could one could imagine, right? So what you're doing is essentially you know, giving them medicines without involving them in trials that you know are already safe and effective. I mean, I, I can't imagine a, a better approach, really. So you've mentioned this very interesting differentiation that I'd like to touch on, which is essentially data and simulations. We have chatted a lot about organoids, and you have this very interesting article on LinkedIn touching on organ on a chip. So we're all here talking about real-world data, which is one part of it, but you're also talking about the next level. Uh, could you possibly explain to us what you mean by data, 
what you mean by simulations and also what is an organ on a chip. Yeah. So, so yeah, I wrote an article on LinkedIn called why, why humanless trials could be a, a, the pharmaceutical industry's nirvana, right? And this actually, I published it quite some time ago. So it's nice that you, you kind of referred back to that. And so what I was looking at that article was, you know, the concept of, of, of humanless or patientless trials. And as we just talked about, to me, that really means simulating a, a trial outcome, you know, with existing data without requiring patients to be in a trial. And so where are we at today? The key here is that you need to develop an accurate simulation of a trial. And with the advent of machine learning methodologies and AI, we're getting to the point where we can create very sophisticated models or simulations of complex systems, but you need to have good data to train these models. That's often the part that people leave out, right? We often talk about AI and the power of AI and machine learning, and it can seemingly do all these amazing things. But you need to have the structured data and the right data to actually train these models and make sure that they're what they're predicting is something that's accurate and representative of a complex system. So the the issue and, and what I believe is one of the grand challenges that we need to solve in order to unlock the power of AI in healthcare right now is the fact that a lot of this healthcare data is, is very fragmented. It's all over the place in different systems. There's a lack of data standards. There's no universal ontology that helps you knit these data sets together. And so you don't have a very complete picture of a person's health over time, uh, let alone a population's health over time. So when you start to talk about simulating trials and, and outcomes, you really need to have that very nuanced picture of how people's health evolves over time based on various different stimuli, stimuli. And so what you were talking about with organ of the chip, so what I was thinking about in the article was how do you, how does one approach this from a different angle? And so I, I was sort of asking the question, what if you could bypass that very large and sticky problem of trying to knit together all these data sets and instead generate very well-structured and very representative data from technologies like organ on a chip. These are generally called microphysiological systems. So they're, they're, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they're, you know, organs on a chip are microfluidic systems that generally when, when they're honed in can, can do a great job of emulating you know, the organs and their functionality. And then there's organoids, which are like 3D biology, which are, which are growing, you know, different types of cells together in a way that emulates the physiology of an organ. And so the question is, can you start to interrogate those systems and generate data? And by the way, you can start to make this genetically diverse, right? So you can start to think of populations of of organs on a chips or patients on a chip and so then can you use that data to then create or train these machine learning algorithms that will better simulate potentially the outcomes of trials so it's it's a long ways away and i think you know some people would be listening to this podcast and automatically say well how do you determine or how do you correct for environmental effects which we know are so significant to to health right or outcomes or health outcomes 
And I would say, well, you know, at the very least, if you start to think about these genetically diverse populations on chips, you can start to at least get to more sophisticated hypotheses around subpopulations and inclusion exclusion criteria and design more effective trials. But then over time, as we start to learn a little bit more about the connections of environmental effects with health outcomes, you can actually start to weave that data in as well and, and actually get to a lot better simulations. So that's, that's sort of what I was thinking. Yeah. So you're basically talking about augmenting existing traditional randomized controlled trials with outside source data rather than replacing it. I believe that a lot of um, the pushback we get about the concept of patient-less trials is mm. the preconceived notion that it is randomized or patient-less as opposed to what you have explained, randomized and patient-less. It is very interesting because what you're talking about is both randomized and patient-less trials augmenting one another by supplementing data. Is that correct? That's exactly right. I mean, at least in the near term, that's that's really the, the, the only way I see it. I don't think it's realistic to think at this point we could truly replace randomized controlled trials with simulations. But that being said, you can start to think about how you hone your hypotheses around clinical trial design, really getting into you know, better subpopulation analysis or even categorization up front. So I think these two things can be used in combination to be much more effective. Yeah. So we all know the stats, $2.7 billion and five to 10 years to develop a drug. Do you think this kind of approach can accelerate this process? And what would that change look like? Are we talking about going from 2.7 billion to 2.5 billion, or are we talking about a significant decrease in both cost and time for drug development? Yeah, I think I think the in terms of the impact, I think it will probably evolve over time given you know our capabilities and the sophistication by which we're able to establish these models and simulations, right? So right now we're already starting to see an impact, right? I would argue that there are some elements of patientless trials already being a being adapted in the industry, right? We talk a lot about virtual control arms and we're starting to see them being effectively deployed a lot into oncology trials right now. And so obviously there's already an impact where you don't need to, to stand up an entire control arm of a study, um, giving them an existing treatment where you more or less should already know the outcomes, right? Of that. So, so we're starting to see that impact as we as we get better at simulating, for instance, get better at maybe kind of using these simulations to design better subpopulation categorizations and get more targeted on trials, I, I think you can start to see a pretty significant impact. I, I don't think we're talking about an incremental 10% here. I think you could really move the needle on and bend the cost time curve of drug development fairly significantly. I mean, you can imagine what if you get to a point, right, where you're using these organs on a chip to really get rid of some of the things that still occur in trials, which is like toxicity issues, which, you know, if you can model that out better through simulations and 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 just stop doing some of these trials that aren't going to work out anyway, because we because the animal models aren't telling us the right answer. That, that could have a significant impact on the portfolio. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic going forward that though, that this type of approach will start to have more and more of an impact on, on the way we develop drugs. 
So organs on chips, are these science fiction? Or have you seen some projects already out there that have at least developed a proof of concept? They actually exist. I've seen them in real life. So uh, part of my journey into humanless trials was actually meeting some of the folks that, that work on organs on a chip. So I'm, I'm thinking in particular about this company called Emulate Bio. And there's some great folks that I've been talking to there for multiple years now. There's a lot of other companies, by the way, but I'm just more familiar with Emulate and their products. And they, they really do create these microfluidic systems that's based off of a lot of work that that team did at the Wyss Institute at Harvard, showing that these microfluidic systems can in fact, emulate human physiology, thus the name. And so they have products like lung, lung on a chip uh, and various things. I think liver on a chip, which, which I think do in, in, in a lot of instances, do a lot better job of predicting things than say the traditional animal models in, in those diseases. Hey, we need a lung on chip for those vaccines that we're all trying to chase for COVID. Speaking about COVID-19, do you think that COVID-19 made the concept of patientless trials more of a painkiller as opposed to a vitamin? Or are we still at the vitamin stage? I'm going to go with a, with a vitamin, I guess, because I, I think that, you know, painkillers suggest to me that you're sort of masking the problem by, by treating the symptom. And I think that COVID-19 has opened up the gateways for us to to more rapidly experiment with technologies and trials, thereby increasing the likelihood of finding solutions that are going to have a, a meaningful impact in, in, on the future paradigm of development. So I, I'm actually, although you know, COVID-19 is first and foremost a human tragedy, some of the challenges that it's posed to the industry and the healthcare system at large, I think we're, we're going to see these reverberating effects of, of the sort of technology experimentation that we're doing today going forward. So I, I, I'd like to think of it, even though this is a terrible experience, I'd like to think of it more as a vitamin and, and really treating some of the root cause effects of the challenges that we've, we've historically faced. You touched on that a bit when you mentioned that machine learning is great, but it is only as good as the data we are feeding it. In healthcare, there are a lot of issues with data. You have touched on some of them, but I'd like to hear some of the data problems that you are currently recognizing and also any kind of advice or framework that you could give to help others evaluate the data that they are feeding into their model. Yeah, sure. So whenever we start to talk about healthcare data and the power of machine learning and, and and potentially leading to a future of more personalized medicine or more targeted medicines, we always tend to reflect on what we've been able to do with genomic sequencing and proteomics. And and in fact, we've come a long way. Like I, I remember starting out as a scientist, I was actually a molecular biologist, and it was right around the time that the Human uh, Genome Project was going on. And I just reflect on how far we've come from that to now be doing whole genomic sequencing for roughly around that $1,000 mark that we all said it would take to kind of really come into the mainstream. So it's just amazing. But what we often overlook is that it's extremely important to also collect nuanced data longitudinally on healthcare outcomes of, of, of people over time so that we can 
relate the genomic sequences and the proteomic signatures to those healthcare outcomes because that I think that's part of the challenge is we don't exactly know what those sequences mean right now in terms of health outcomes and people's susceptibility to disease or their response to medicines. So one of the biggest gaps that I see in this space is really not having that longitudinal healthcare outcomes data that even exists in the first place. And when it when it does exist, often it exists in various different places and in, in different EMR systems that don't necessarily talk to each other. And then even when if they do talk to each other, there might not be a standard ontology that that you can really use to to relate these different healthcare data together. So I think that's kind of one of the biggest challenges going going forward, right? Is is that healthcare outcomes piece, that longitudinal piece, and and then being able to relate that back to genomic sequences, proteomic signatures, and and what that means for for health, and 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 what that means to be able to predict health going forward for populations where younger populations where they where you do know their genomic sequence, you know their proteomic signatures, and then start to predict what is the likelihood that they're going to have a disease or what is the likelihood that they're going to be able to respond to a medication in, in a meaningful way. The industry in general is very familiar with the concept of claims data, the concept of structured data that is used for billing. How good is the claims data? Is it representative of a patient journey? Or do you believe that we have to go back to the old school, unstructured doctor notes, pathology reports, and faxes? Is there one good answer here? Or does it really depend on the therapeutic area? Yeah. I mean, look, claims data is great for certain things. So I don't want to you know, come across as dismissing the the power of claims data and what that could mean to even stitch that together in a more meaningful way but i think when you start really talking about you know these more sophisticated simulations and, and prediction models around you know disease uh, etiology uh, disease progression right and you're trying to pr predict disease progression or or, or medication response you're going to need a much better understanding of how a, a person's, you know, intrinsic makeup, like their omics relates to their healthcare outcomes and how environmental impacts also affect that. And so I think you're going to need this nuanced data that, you know, to some extent sits in physician notes today, but I think to a large extent isn't in, in, in a lot of societies being collected holistically, right? Because when you think about the, our healthcare experience in the US, what, what's going on? Well, most people see a physician once a year, unless you start to really have a problem. And then you're seeing you know, a physician more frequently and you're getting more data collected about you. But even that data tends to be fragmented through images that are stored in one database that don't talk to the physician, you know, really relate to the physician's notes on another database. So I, I think we've got to fix that and we got to get much more nuanced picture of, of, of a person's health over time to really make these more sophisticated predictions. There are hundreds of vendors out there promising machine learning and AI. Mendel is, is actually one of them. There are also hundreds of vendors offering data assets with everyone claiming they have the best technology, the best data, the most longitudinal, the most comprehensive. With so many companies like these trying to sign or work with a top pharma company like Novartis, how efficient is your gatekeeping strategy? How are you assessing vendors 
every week we hear about a new startup, a new VC funding, or a new company with a very creative solution. But I'm curious to understand how you differentiate between promising projects and ones that might need a bit more work. Well, first of all, I'm always inspired by the tremendous entrepreneurs out there really trying to take on these healthcare issues in new and different ways. And so I think what we're seeing is just a product of so many opportunities out there really begetting a number of different startups and, and, and others kind of approaching solving these problems in new ways. And I would n never want to get rid of that, right, at all. I think the question we're asking ourselves at Novartis is, how do we make it a better experience for those partners to kind of interact with us and make sure that the right people in Novartis are talking to the right people in the external ecosystem and that they have the right support system together to really create uh, a novel digital solution? That That's more uh, of the kind of question that we're asking ourselves. Sometimes... Sometimes within that, we'll, we'll present different tests to a, an external partner to really make sure that they have the right fit for the specific problem that we're trying to f solve because they might have a great technology, but it, might, it just might not be the right fit for what we're looking to do. So we want to definitely put that in place to make sure, again, that the right conversations are happening at the right times and that no one feels like there, this is a waste of anyone's time. So we've been thinking a lot about that at, at Novartis. And so one of the things that we're, we're thinking about is how do we actually meet people virtually, right? Right off the bat. And we've, we're, creating, we're creating this product called the Digital Brain where we'll be able to have people anywhere in the world that are creating their, their next big idea and their next company be able to upload their profile into this system. You might even, for instance, be able to sign a one-click NDA and start to get access to some of the problems that we're trying to solve. We might be able to ask you some questions online and, and, and kind of filter whether or not that problem is relevant for you and therefore route you more directly to the right person in the company to talk to. And we, we just think that's going to be a lot better experience for, for everybody involved. So that's something we're actively working on today. Wow. I would assume that one-click NDA in the pharma world must be harder than creating an organ on a chip. One-click NDA is pretty hard, with, with the process sometimes taking 30 days today just to get the paperwork. So the option for a founder to just click a button and get access to what kind of problems they need to start working on, that is very impressive. Yeah, as, as you indicated, it, it's definitely a journey, right? This isn't easy to get to the next level of becoming a pharmaceutical company powered by, by data and digital. So we're obviously approaching this from multiple different dimensions. And one of them, as you, as you sort of alluded to, is culture and talent. So we've been able to really ramp up the talent in our company that really has an expertise in data and digital. We've hired some phenomenal people from some of the best institutions and, and companies out there. And that's it's just fantastic to see. And as, a, and as a result, we're also kind of changing the culture as well. And, you know, frankly, the biome is one element of that, right? How do we kind of fluidly interact and co-create with this powerful external ecosystem of digital health and tech companies? 
answering that question is going to be really important to our culture and how we transform. So we've been thinking a lot about that. And I think you'll start to see some really meaningful evolution as, as a result of those efforts. It's very interesting that you have touched on talent. My co-founder comes from outside of healthcare. Once he finished his PhD, all of job offers were from top tech companies such as Amazon and Google. Something he always reminds me about are the challenges an individual with a computer science background faces when coming into an industry like healthcare. For starters, there is a lot of domain experience within healthcare that is not easy to just pick up right off the bat. Another challenge is the lack of centralized data that non-healthcare companies can provide to AI scientists. So like if you go to Google or Amazon, you have like 20 years of aggregated data, clean and ready to go. You don't get that in healthcare. What I would like to know is how, how are you guys convincing talent from outside healthcare that have the technical expertise to endure these challenges, to come work for a pharma company, which is very regulated. There's lack of, as I said, centralized data. And how are you competing against big tech like Google? Yeah, absolutely. I think it comes down to a couple things in my mind. So on the on the point of how do we attract talent? I mean, one one thing is that that as you as you mentioned, these are hard problems and I think a lot of people want to solve hard problems, right? So I mean, I know that's what sort of attracted me into science and and has driven me through a, a lot of my career is looking at how do I make an impact and and usually when you make an impact, it's not solving an easy problem, right? Otherwise, it you know, would have been solved. So I think that's one element. I think the other element is really looking at how can you influence and improve health, right? I mean, it's a very important problem that touches a lot of people. And so I think what we're seeing is a lot of these folks that are passionate Yes, they have a technical background. They're great, you know, data scientists, but they want to make an impact in healthcare because they know that this is fundamentally a very important thing for our society. So that combination of having a hard problem that at the end of the day is going to create meaningful societal value, I think is half of the value proposition. The other half is, at least for Novartis, is our is our global scale. So if you want to make an impact, come to come to Novartis because once you saw that problem in one area, we're going to look at how we replicate that across the world. I mean, we're operating in over 90 countries and really interacting with all those health systems. So I think that also attracts uh, a lot of people to to our company as well. But as you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of people starting to ramp up their talent pools in this area as well. A lot of healthcare companies and Google and Facebook and all those folks are trying to get more and more into the healthcare space. So we're not taking anything for granted at Novartis. We're continuing to think about how do we sharpen our value proposition for people? How do we continue to tackle these very challenging healthcare problems that we know will inspire others to come and join us in our mission? You guys now have a dedicated AI team within Novartis, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, at some point in time, you know, it, it was very clear to us that AI although it's not really a technology, it's like a technology paradigm, but we knew that that was going to be really fundamental to a lot of things that we're trying to do. So therefore, we're very interested in creating that backbone, that platform that will allow us to deploy that, that technology paradigm into various different solutions more effectively. So yeah, we do have a dedicated organization. Reading your blog posts and talking to you, I feel like one of the individuals who really inspired you is David Eddy. 
you had mentioned him in one of your blog posts. Would you like to talk about Eddie? He really built an amazing team. Actually, now at Mendel, we're looking for people that worked at Archimedes because these individuals were on the forefront of the whole concept of patientless trials when it was not popular, which I believe to be very courageous and, and brave back at the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know David that well, to be honest, but the little bit I know of his work, it's it's just fascinating, right? I mean, this is a guy that, you know, just has so many different talents. He is a physician, but yet also a scientist that really, you know, also did some amazing, incredible mathematics. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at him as one of the fathers of clinical trial simulations. He developed this program called Archimedes, which was able to reproduce uh, a large outcome study that the, I, I believe the national healthcare system in, in the UK had run around one of the statins. And he was able to kind of reproduce that using these clinical trial simulations. And I think that led to this whole discipline around clinical trial simulations being created more or less, and has been one of the major influencers of us even talking about the reality of humanless and patientless trials in the future. So I, I always get a kick out of people that just, they, they seem to have so many different talents and they're able to pull them together to create new and, and fascinating solutions. So David, if you ever hear this podcast, hats off to you. I mean, you just had an amazing career. <laughs> How do you think of 2025? How is it going to look like in regards to clinical research? Yeah, so I think the probability that some institution or some company will ultimately create a competitive advantage in some part of the value chain and, and, and it will force others to catch up quickly as a result. So, so therefore, I actually think 2025 is going to look a lot more tech-enabled than probably expected at the beginning of the year as a result of this pandemic. And so I think what you'll find is, is different people are going to in, innovate in different parts of the value chain, but it's going to force everyone to rise to that new expectation. And so I think it's going to catalyze a, a faster result. My last question, if you can Zoom call any living person today, who would it be and why? I guess it would probably be Ray Kurzweil. All right. And and for people that, that don't know Ray, I certainly don't. So I guess that, that's why I wish I would be able to Zoom call him. But again, another amazing scientist. Uh, was one of the foundational scientists around voice uh, recognition, using AI to do that at MIT. He's now, I believe, still is head of engineering at Google. But beyond that, he's written uh, several popular science books around a concept called singularity, right? Is And the whole concept of singularity, um, I might butcher this a bit, so you have to forgive me, Ray, but it's a point in time at which we're going to be able to create human-like knowledge with AI. So essentially really passing the Turing test in, in all earnesty. And at that point, AI is going to be able to create all these fascinating technologies. And, and it's anyone's guess as to how the future will evolve from there. But I remember reading that one of his books when I was traveling for an extended period of time after I left my consulting role at McKinsey and & Company. And that really inspired me. It seems, it seems cheesy, but... <laughs> It really did inspire me to go down this this journey of thinking about how to digitize the R&D engine of, of, of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which has led me, you know, it ultimately led me to Novartis. Uh, it ultimately led me to think about patientless trials. 
it, it led me to my current role, which I absolutely love doing. So I, I, he's had a tremendous influence on my career and probably doesn't even know it. Ray, if you can hear this podcast, please Zoom call Jake. His book was actually translated into nine languages and it's one of the best-selling books on Amazon. So great choice, Jake. I'm just wondering if you're going to talk to him or to his AI um, version. I mean, this is a guy who, who pretty much may have an AI version of him. People that smart can build like array on chip if there is a need. Hey, Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. As always, it's been very inspiring. I'm sure our audience is going to find this to be really, really cool. Everyone reach out to Jake on LinkedIn, read his blog posts. They're very inspiring and interesting. But again, thank you. Stay safe and hope to have you on our show one more time. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. My pleasure. I would love to come back. And thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.